0: Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet, you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y dot to start customizing your furniture now. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. This is Milstreet Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, it's my interview with Nigella Lawson. We discuss what's to love about brown food, what's to hate about tasting menus, and what everyone gets wrong about cooks.
2: That's why I always say to people whenever someone says, oh, but you're a cook and cooks are so nurturing. I go, listen, they are, but really we're control freaks.
0: We'll hear from Nigella later in the show. But first, it's the story of Milton Hershey, the man behind America's favorite chocolate bar.
3: So, Milton S. Hershey, the builder of an ideal town continues to build. Mr. Hershey, how many years have you been in the candy business? Sixty years. Are you still active in the business? Indeed I am. You know, you must use an
0: unbelievable amount of cocoa beans. We use... As much coca
4: beans as France, Switzerland, Italy, and Spain put together. Hmm.
0: This radio interview is the only known recording of Milton Hershey's voice. At 80 years old, he was still running his chocolate empire, but his path to fame and fortune had taken many turns along the way. Joining me now to talk about his life is Amy Ziegler. She's the senior director at the Hershey Story Museum in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Amy, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you,
5: happy to be here.
0: So this is the story of Milton Hershey, which turns out to be a much more interesting story than I guess I, I thought at the beginning. So he didn't start with a ton of success, right? He he started with a candy shop in Philadelphia. Uh, just give us a, a summary of some of his early days.
5: Sure, yeah, he was not an instant success. Um, His mother was a strict Mennonite, believed in education until you were old enough to get a job and contribute to the family. His father, on the other hand, loved traveling, had lots of get-rich-quick ideas for business, and moved them all over the place when Milton was young. So he really only ever, he said, attained the equivalent of a fourth-grade education. But he actually apprenticed with a candy maker for four years. When he finished his apprenticeship, he moved to Philadelphia in 1876, and he opened a shop.
0: And that, did that store survive, or he? I think he sold it at some point, right?
5: Well, it didn't survive, actually. Um, his father got Milton involved in a couple of business ideas that didn't pan out very well, and he ended up declaring bankruptcy six years after he got there. So he traveled around the United States, Chicago, New Orleans, ended up in New York City, and was also unsuccessful there. But he traveled to Denver between his Philadelphia and New York businesses, and that's where he learned how to make caramels. Um, The person he studied with there was actually using fresh milk instead of paraffin wax, which was an unusual thing to do. So when Milton Hershey came back to Pennsylvania after his New York failure, he really started to focus on caramels and that was sort of the beginning of him being able to get
0: on his feet again. So I read that he sold the caramel business for a million bucks, yep. uh, which was a lot of money back then. In
5: 1900, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a
0: huge amount of money. So he takes that money, and then he spends it in part on figuring out how to make great milk chocolate. Uh, and then he has a lineup, you know, a catalog of over 100 items. Yes. And some of the stuff, some of these are pretty cool. Tennis, cigarettes... Uh, Zuka sticks, little container shaped like mail pouches that went into a boxcar. Yeah. So they had a, a lot of really cool sort of specialty items, right?
5: Yes. And a lot of those items, actually, all of those items were really not milk chocolate. They were dark chocolate, which is what people were doing at the time. So he was experimenting with making milk chocolate between 1893 and 1904, and the things that he did to really make chocolate available to the masses, where he used less expensive cocoa beans and roasted them at a higher temperature, which improved the flavor. And he also used mass production techniques. So when people always compare him to Henry Ford, that's kind of where that comes in. And he also was a pretty good marketer considering he didn't use national media. He wrapped postcards inside chocolate bars that showed views of the factory and the community that he built around the factory and things like that.
0: The early Willy Wonka. Exactly. Well, you mentioned communities. I think this is an interesting part of the story because some companies built their own model villages. I think actually um, the Kohler Company out in the Midwest near Milwaukee, they also built a, a community. So the idea of a model community for your workers was something that Hershey was very much behind, right?
5: Yes. Industrial communities at the time that Milton Hershey was beginning to think about building Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, they were pretty common. And so places like Bourneville in England, which was built by the Cadbury brothers, was a really great example of people who took good care of their workers and provided a lot of things for them outside of the workplace. Um, Something like Pullman, Illinois, which was the community started by the man who created sleeper cars was not a great place to live. And there's a good chance that Milton Hershey visited Pullman when he was at the Columbian Exposition in 1893 where he purchased his first chocolate-making equipment. And so I think he really paid attention to what worked and what he didn't want to do when he was starting his own community.
0: So let, let's dig into the details because I think people will find this surprising. Uh, a men's club, a gymnasium, a pool, a library, a bowling alley, public meeting rooms. Uh, and there was also a newspaper, a golf course, a trolley system, a miniature railway, a man made lake. And, a, and the zoo was the largest free private zoo in America. So th- this wasn't <laughs> just, you know, some housing and the company store.
6: Every housing comfort of the 20th century for the workers. And the man behind it all? Milton S. Hershey. He built a model town, including this great community building with its library, gymnasium, playroom, solariums, and one of the most beautiful theaters in the land.
0: So he goes to Cuba around the First World War, and what happens in Cuba?
5: Um, It's interesting how he ended up there. His wife passed away in 1915, so he and his mother decided kind of on a whim to go to Cuba. And he Almost immediately fell in love with the island, started buying up sugar plantations, and then eventually built an entire community called Hershey, Cuba, which was very, very similar to Hershey, Pennsylvania.
0: So if I went to Cuba today, would I see any of this? Does any of it survive?
5: As far as I know, the Hershey sign is still hanging at the railroad station. Hmm. Um, The baseball diamond that was built in the community is still there, and kids still play on it every day. So it's there. People who live there still call it Hershey Cuba, even though the name changed years ago. But I will say two of my favorite days working at the Hershey Story were when two different families who grew up in Hershey Cuba came to visit us. One man hadn't taken a vacation in 15 years, and he came to Hershey, Pennsylvania, because he thought we were the only people who would appreciate... Milton Hershey as much as he did.
0: So what happens to him? He's he's has a huge fortune. And then he I think he gave it all away to a school or something at the end of his life. Yes.
5: Yes. So he and his wife were unable to have children. And he always said it was his wife Kitty's idea that they start a school for orphans. So he took his holdings in the chocolate company almost his entire fortune which was estimated to be $60 million at the time, and he put it into a trust for the school. And he didn't tell anybody, which is always amazing to me. It's one of my favorite Milton Hershey stories.
0: Do you take away from this anything about the American dream? You know, we were entering the Industrial Age in the late 19th century. You know, the Rockefellers, Hershey, a lot of people making their fortunes. Mm-hmm. Was Did he stand out in some way as being different, or did he sort of, show off traits that were consistent with, you know, Pullman and everybody else?
5: Some, I mean, obviously he was very driven and wanted to be successful, but I don't think that for him money was necessarily success. I think doing something that he loved that provided a good product to people meant a lot to him. I mean, he built things and did things that operated at huge losses for most of his lifetime. But he still kept funding them because he thought they were important for people to have. And I'm always struck when he was 21 years old, he wrote in someone's autograph book a quote that basically says, one is only happy in proportion as he makes others happy, and kind of goes on to talk about giving your things away to help other people. And he was really struggling financially at that time. So for him to be thinking that way at that time of his life, I think is really foretelling about how he was going to be later on.
0: Amy, thank you so much. The story of Milton Hershey. Sure, you're very welcome. That was Amy Ziegler, Senior Director at the Hershey Story Museum. Now it's time to answer some of your baking questions with Cheryl Day. Cheryl is, of course, the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also the author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. So, Cheryl, I used to know or thought I used to know what to do for Valentine's Day. I don't know what to do. (laughs) <laughs> anymore. No, I've been maybe I've been married, you know, too long and too many kids, but I need advice here. What is it you would like Griff to do for you on Valentine's Day?
3: Well, that's interesting. Normally, I want him to cook something delicious, and I'm happy with that. But for the first time, gosh, maybe ever, we're actually going to our favorite neighborhood restaurant, hmm. and I've told. A lot of friends to go. I think it's going to be one big party. That sounds great. (laughs) And, you know, with a group of couples that won't be necessarily at my table and I don't have to do the dishes. But, yeah, kind of like a little group of folks are going to be hanging out at this one restaurant. And that's what we're doing this year.
0: So instead of the two lovebirds... At the dark table with a candle on the flowers. Right. (laughs) It's it's a party. It's like we're going to. It's going to be
3: a party. (laughs) All
0: right. Okay. Let's take a call.
3: Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street is calling. Hi, Cheryl. This is Louise Allen. Hi,
7: Louise. Where are you calling from? Well, I'm actually down the street. I live in South Florida, but I started today a pastry arts program at Boston University.
3: Wow. That is exciting. Well, how can we help
7: you today? Growing up, there was a bakery in Carl Gables that we all loved. It was called Andalusia. Mm
8: -hmm. And
7: one of the things they made was called a chocolate melt away. It was a round ring Danish, and it had pockets of pastry cream and pockets of some kind of a chocolate. And I tried to find the recipe online, and I haven't. And I've tried to recreate it without much success. So I'd love to know if you have any ideas.
3: Well, first of all, it sounds absolutely delicious. Is it a traditional Danish recipe and then it has like a vanilla or chocolate pastry cream?
7: I would say it is a typical a traditional Danish, but it is in a ring, not in individual servings. So it would serve maybe five, six, seven people. Oh wow. And it had, I would say looking back that it was probably a traditional pastry cream and some kind of a chocolate custard maybe or maybe
3: even now that you say that maybe even a chocolate pastry cream yeah if it's a custard it would be a chocolate i'm just not sure how to get it like into the pockets yeah i'm not familiar with this particular recipe chris is that something you've heard of the
0: reason i've been so quiet is i have never had this (laughs) and i i mean i can imagine how you could make it but But let me uh, just
7: suggest if you think to a pastry ring that maybe has A pocket of a strawberry jelly and maybe a pocket of an apricot jelly. It's kind of a net mold, but this one had pastry cream.
0: What? Is it like a sort of a croissant-like interior that's very airy or or what's the inside like?
7: Like a cheese Danish. It's that kind of a Danish.
0: Well, I assume they just take the pastry cream in a big icing bag with a nozzle and shove it into the side of the thing and, and fill it. But I love the idea of different flavors in different places in the ring. That sounds great. Is the outside covered with something, or is it just plain pastry on the outside?
1: The whole
7: thing is the outside. Don't think about like a Danish that's a roll Danish. Right. It's a ring, and then it has these different pockets, if that makes sense. Would you cook it with the pastry cream in it, or would you add the pastry cream
0: afterwards? After it's baked, you'd add the pastry cream with a big, you know, a nozzle with on the a end big cream like
3: that. Yeah, yeah, almost like how you would fill a donut afterwards. It sounds like, but it's not filled. It's on the top. Oh, it's not filled.
1: Oh, so when okay. you look
7: at it, it's like the size of a cake. It feeds like six, seven, eight people. Mm-hmm. Probably eight to ten inches across, and then it has these circles, maybe three inches around, of all the different fillings either the fruit ones or this was a chocolate melt away, probably a chocolate pastry cream and, and a regular pastry cream and then swizzles of chocolate across the top.
0: You said Andalusia Bakery, but when I was in Madrid a couple of years ago, a few years ago, they do have like a Christmas cake. It's like a king cake. It's round. Mm-hmm. They do have a filling inside. They slice it and fill it, but the top is full of stuff. It feels a little like it's based on that Spanish cake, that king's cake. I wonder if it's related to that recipe, because in all the bakeries in Madrid, I was there in December, were just full of those cakes.
7: I did find one bakery in the United States that advertises it, but they don't give out the recipe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But Louise, now that you're in pastry school, I wonder if you'll have the opportunity to crack this code. Well, I'm going to work on it. We will be making puff pastry. I know that. and So maybe I'll
7: convince the class to give it a try.
3: When you described it, I was going to say that you could, you know, use a basic Danish dough and make it into any all kinds of shapes and then bake it and fill it. But this is sounding like something different entirely. I've got to look this up.
0: Louise, thank you so much. This is, um, I hate to say it, but food for thought. Thank you.
3: Thank
7: you both. Really appreciate it. Take
0: care. This is Mill Street Radio. If your cheesecake is cracked or your cookies just won't snap, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hi, my name's Lindsay out of Waco, Texas. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm excited to be here. So how can we help you today? Well, this past holiday season,
9: my uh, husband and i we came across a toffee recipe, and of course, we wanted to try it out at home for ourselves and we had never made a toffee before, so that experience went really well. But one of the last steps in the recipe was when the toffee was still hot was to sprinkle uh chocolate chips on top to let it melt and then kind of have that chocolate covering and while Um, It's tasty and great. When we're ever holding like the toffee, the chocolate starts to melt on our fingers. And we kind of wanted to elevate the recipe and try to make it something that we can kind of pass around um, for kind of years to come that we were wondering what recommendations y'all had for that chocolate. Right now, we were just using like chocolate chips, but I think there is something to do with tempering. I just wasn't exactly
3: sure what that might be. You're using chocolate chips for the chocolate portion? Is that correct? Yes. We pour the toffee
9: onto the pan and then while it's still hot, the chocolate chips go on, let it melt a little bit, and then
3: we spread it out to kind of create that covering. Yeah. Do you make toffee, Chris?
0: No, I eat toffee, (laughs) but I don't make toffee.
3: Chocolate chips usually don't melt. They hold their shape. I wonder if you could do a simple chocolate drizzle on top with melted chocolate and you definitely want to make sure that you don't use chocolate chips for that you want to use a nice quality chocolate to melt it but what do you think chris
0: well if you temper chocolate it will remain solid and glossy at a higher temperature i've tried tempering chocolate twice and i can't say i had a lot of success with that can you buy tempered chocolate
3: No. I mean, I think the main thing when you're tempering it, and I'm actually no expert at tempering it, I do know that I want my chocolate to be nice and shiny and not grainy. So the way that I achieve that is just making sure that I don't overheat it and you're making sure that it's cooling down properly. Are you sprinkling the chips on top or are you melting those chocolate chips?
9: Essentially, like the heat from the toffee is what melts the chocolate. Got it. It kind of gives you that covering. I'm wondering when you're saying like the temperature, if the toffee, like the sugar, if that's too hot, that it kind of... Right. Absolutely.
3: Yes, absolutely. What I would do is let the toffee rest and set up and then do a drizzle, you know, like a stripy drizzle on top. And then I think that would really elevate the look of it. And then you could choose a nice quality chocolate... And melt it either in a skillet with some water underneath your bowl or over a double boiler. And then make sure it doesn't get too hot. It stays shiny. And then you can just kind of drizzle it on top, either putting it in a pastry bag or just even, you know, taking a fork and just kind of striping the top. Just depends on how elevated you want to take this.
0: <laughs> you don't want that, that chocolate to get really hot if you melt it.
3: Yeah, and you can visually look at it too, Lindsay. You know, you don't want it to break on you or to look grainy at all. Sometimes I make my own toppings for cakes and things, and what I do is I melt the chocolate, you spread it out on a sheet pan, and put it in the freezer or the refrigerator for a little bit of time, and then it sets up so I know that would work for sure. Okay. Does that make sense? It makes sense then. Why it starts melting in my hand. (laughs) But I I think the drizzle is a great idea. I could go for a piece of that toffee right now. My husband and I, we love y'all's show, and we
9: have always waited to have a question to call and ask. And this was (laughs) finally like,
0: yes, we can call Milk Street. (laughs) I'll leave you with one last thought. I just remembered that you can temper chocolate with a sous vide.
3: But who has that oh. at home? Well, that you
0: can buy them for 80 or 90 bucks. I mean, some are 50 or 60 bucks. I mean, that's not nothing, but they're not $400.
3: You'll be going in business then, Lindsay, with this <laughs> talk. Well, no,
0: sous vide will perfectly maintain the right temperature. So, anyway, that's just a thought. Oh, man. Which Cheryl does not like, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> what are you doing, man? Cheating. <laughs> Cheating. Well, thanks so much yeah. for calling and good thanks luck. Thanks for that. calling, yeah.
3: Lindsay. Yeah. Thank you guys so much.
0: Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, the world according to Nigella Lawson. That's right after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas.
10: Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do New American cuisine with the emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you'll always see me at the pass, making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. Personally, I've always loved seafood. And our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets and uh, we air dry them. So it's nice and crispy. Uh, We do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel. And then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because... Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new, exciting um, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create and you don't have to go to the strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that, you know, that could be a Michelin star restaurant, like Main Street Provisions. It's off the strip but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that.
0: (laughs) From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by food writer and TV cook, Nigella Lawson. Her latest book, published in the U.S. in 2021, is called Cook, Eat, Repeat, Ingredients, Recipes, and Stories. Nigella, welcome back to Milk Street.
2: Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here.
0: So we're going to talk a bit about your most recent book, Cook, Eat, Repeat. We have talked about it before on the show, And I told you how much I really love it. Um, But you said something interesting in the book. You said a recipe, much like a novel, is a living collaboration between writer and reader. And in both cases, it is the reader who keeps it alive. I just love that notion of the reader keeping your work or my work alive.
2: But don't you think that's so? I mean, a recipe can be written, a recipe can be printed, but it's really the recipes that are cooked and that are passed (laughs) From family member to family member, or just become part of people's lives—that is what keeps a recipe alive.
0: Um, a couple of things also from your book: you, you don't apologize for brown food. I totally agree with that. Uh, au
2: contraire. <laughs> yeah. Au contraire. <laughs> au yes. contraire, you mon frère. Like <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love that. Yeah, I love it. I, I feel Instagram, while it's done many good things, has somewhat prioritized the pretty or the boldly colourful. you know, and, and pretty food is uplifting, as is colour. But it doesn't... It can't take the, the place of taste.
0: You say as a kid you were a big reader and that you're still a big reader. Very few people, you know, read a lot of books these days. So do you find that you select friends uh, who are big readers too?
2: Well, I think not on purpose, but I have. And that because I... You know, years ago, you know, I, I, you know, was a book reviewer, and um, right. and so in a way, that's where I come from. I think some people read. I tend to guard my reading jealously. I mean, I people, I often feel I don't watch enough TV, but you can't do everything. And I so love silence. Like I have a couple of friends I watch TV with. All my kids, but. If I know the option of silence is not possible, then I'm happy to watch TV. But if I'm by myself and therefore silence is on offer, I wouldn't turn on the television, not because I don't think television can be wonderful. However, I have a problem with noise. So reading silently is something I, I need. I feel it's like eating for me. I've always said, for me, reading, reading I'm now actually forming new words. Um for me, you know, eating and reading are similar and writing and cooking also are analogous.
0: Well, cooking, you cook, serve, eat, it's done. Unfortunately, writing, you have to keep going back to it and, and, and burnishing it and making it but better. But you do so. that
2: all the time when you cook.
0: Yeah, it's just okay. over a smaller, yeah.
2: you know, a more condensed time frame. It's less painful, that's for sure. But on the other hand... All the cooking you do comes out of the cooking you've done previously and right. the eating you've done previously. So I suppose you edit without noticing it because you don't edit. And this is what really interests me about cooking. While I think food is very worthy of intellectual study, I think what is interesting is when you cook your you're not having thoughts. You know, you have sensation instead. You have the feel of the dough in your fingers or the smell of, of a cake in the oven or the noise onions make as they fry, which is a different noise the more cooked they become. So you're having to live in a very different world. It's the realm of the senses. And I find that... So much of modern life, there's so much fizzing and popping in your mind, and there's so much that takes place from the neck up that I think it's very good just to be a person in your body, in your kitchen.
0: Yeah, it's really, you know, we don't fix our cars anymore. Most people don't go hunting anymore. But cooking is the one thing that's sort of left, and that's why I'm quite protective of it.
2: Yes, and also, I'm very urban. So it's really, you know, apart from a walk in a park, but, right. yeah, it's really the way I connect with nature. It makes me feel grounded in that way.
0: You, you also said, you talked about loss and suffering in life mm. and everybody's had that. You said, it's taught me that the universe is random and cruel, chaotic also. So how, if that's your outlook, and I don't disagree at all with that, how do you find happiness in a random, cruel, chaotic universe?
2: You see, I don't regard that as a negative thing to say. <laughs> By okay, which I mean, you cannot control the world. Everything right. that matters is largely beyond your control. So you have to be in it and enjoy what's there. And that does, I'm afraid also consist of a lot of misery but life is precious and maybe i the older i get the more i'm aware of it because i don't want to waste the time i have left you know you know going into the past about what went wrong or Mm -hmm. you know all the things that aren't great or what could be better because it seems to me such a self-defeating way of being
0: I I totally agree. I, as, as someone said, you woke up this morning, lots of people didn't, so enjoy the day. Um, you, you talk about plain cake, and I think this says a lot about you. There's a modesty about a plain cake. It doesn't draw attention to itself or seek to impress. It's there to be sliced as needed, always delivering more than it promises. For me, that that sort of sums up your approach to cooking.
2: <laughs> well, that's a lovely thing of you to say. I do think, again, it goes back to that thing which is things can look showy and they can be spectacular as well from a technical point of view. But there's a comfort in plainness and I think people might misunderstand an awful lot about plainness because they think plainness equates with blandness and that isn't the case. There's a certain uncluttered palette that you need to appeal to, I I suppose. And it sort of goes back to what I was saying in my brown food chapter. You know, saying that, you know, everything's meant to make a statement these days, including you. And sometimes you don't want to make a statement. You're not there to shout or to have people put a spotlight on you. You just want to be quietly and comfortably in a room. And food is like that too.
0: So have you eaten at Heston Blumenthal's? I mean, we're talking about a themed dinner around the summer seaside. I and, have and th- eaten his and? food.
2: Um, if I had to say, what phrase instills terror in you and makes you want to do a runner? For me, it's tasting menu. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, I just can't the cope worst. with it. And I think it may well be to do with the fact that I wasn't a good eater as a child and I was forced to eat. So for me, it, it, it makes me feel slightly annihilated having choice taken away it's no it's no coincidence that I started loving food when I began being in charge of what I ate myself and my mother was a wonderful cook and I loved her food I just prefer I just prefer being in charge that's why I always say to people whenever someone says oh but you're a cook and cooks are so nurturing I go listen they are but really we're control freaks Ooh, um,
1: that's, nurturing
2: that's though we might be I would find it very difficult if I if I couldn't say what I was going to eat.
0: No. Okay, so let's we're gonna do something now which may be a failure, but we Oh no, do you're not
2: gonna do Rorschach tests, as it were.
0: It depends if you want to do it. No,
2: I'll try, but you. just because it's meant to be quick yeah, it, mean I'll be quick. I'm normally quite quick, but when I'm forced to be quick, I, I become pondering.
0: Okay, here we go. A few questions answered quickly or not. Cocktail sausages. Perfect. Nouvelle cuisine.
2: Mm. (laughs) actually it was wonderful when the top people did it and then it became you know people misunderstood it but yes interesting but bring me the butter
0: here's a hard one charles dickens or henry james
2: oh that's i don't do those choices i'm i'm um, i i don't i want both however i think i may have lost the gift of reading henry james
0: yeah i i never got through the golden bowl but Dickens is certainly easier to read. And, I mean, and I assume, David yeah.
2: Copperfield is a book yes. I do return to me too. regularly. And every time I read it, and that's plenty of times now, it's fresh. It's an extraordinary novel. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it was Freud's favorite novel.
0: Um, this is a question everyone asks. Person from history you'd most like to sit down and have dinner with? <sighs>
2: Um, it's very difficult. I can't really imagine. I'm more interested in the living than the dead. Vivian Gornick I would love to have dinner with.
0: Okay, now you got me. Who's Vivian Gornick? She's
2: a wonderful writer. She's an extraordinarily mm. good writer. You must read Fierce Attachments. But she's, okay. a, but she's really an excellent critic as well. I love her. I love being allowed into her mind. She writes very crisp sentences She always chooses the word that tastes right.
0: And the typical last question, which is last words, what would yours be?
2: I don't know, but I was taught this wonderful thing. These are true last words that Kim Witherspoon, you know, the wonderful Mm -hmm. agent. She was Tony Bourdain's agent, and that's how I know her. And she said something to me once, because I was obviously fizzing and popping and worrying about something. And she had gone into hospital to see the mother, you know, elderly, you know, I think she must have been about 90, uh, a mother of a a friend of hers, and she was dying. And at the very last thing, she kind of put her hands up and said, all that worry, and then died. And I think (laughs) I say that to myself a lot, because, Mm. yes... Don't make it all about the worry. In the end, things happen, they don't happen. Now, it's very hard to be that person and not to worry. I worry about everything. A bit of worry is good. Um, And things, I feel that most things worth doing are frightening. However, those are the last words I find the most valuable. There's wisdom in those words.
0: Yeah, I guess the problem is knowing something and then acting on it. Yeah,
2: but I think you days. probably only really find out as she did on your deathbed. So you may as well just say, <laughs> I'm just going to bimble <laughs> along as I am. I won't get it. I won't understand no. it. No. I'm getting nearer. And then my last second, I'll go, oh, that's what it was about.
0: <laughs> that is. Oh, we all have that to look forward to. <laughs> a revelation at the very last second. Nigella, it's always a pleasure having you here at Milk Street. Thanks so much.
2: I always adore talking to you, Chris. And here's to the next time.
0: That was Nigella Lawson. Her most recent book is Cook, Eat, Repeat Ingredients, Recipes, and Stories. You can hear an extended version of her interview at milkstreetradio.com. Nigella reminded me that food is gone from the humble dining room table to star status on social media, much like a good book being adapted to the screen. Everyday brown food just doesn't stand a chance. And this preference for colorful entertainment is also true of Hollywood. According to critics, the top three movies of all time are The Godfather, Citizen Kane, and Rear Window. But modern media chooses three very different movies, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Karate Kid, and Mad Max Fury Road. So I call this the Citizen Kane conundrum. Great art demands a commitment of both attention and thought. Unfortunately, modern culture demands neither. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, dark chocolate terrine with coffee and cardamom. Lynn, how are you?
4: I'm doing well, Chris.
0: You know, I remember one of my first... French dishes back, I don't know, early 70s was, of course, chocolate mousse, a mm. uh, very popular dish for a long time. But, of course, I don't know why, everything gets more complicated and more interesting in the culinary world. <laughs> you can't leave you know, good enough alone. So chocolate terrine with coffee and cardamom, similar to mousse, but fancier, right? And better, I would hope.
4: Well, you know, this is what I call a dirty little secret recipe. Because it's absolutely beautiful, so elegant, it looks like something that's kind of restaurant worthy, and it has a fancy French name, it's called Marquise au Chocolat, but the truth is, it's dead easy to make, you can bake it ahead, and you probably already have everything in your house to make this right now.
0: That almost sounds too good to be true.
4: It does, but luckily it's not. So it's just like a chocolate mousse. You would make a chocolate mousse, which we'll talk about a little bit in a second, and then you pour that into a loaf pan that's lined with plastic, put it in the fridge for several hours, then unmold it, and then slice it. It's kind of a contrast in that obviously it's dense enough to hold that shape, but when you take a bite of it, it's that light and airy texture of like the best chocolate mousse you've ever had.
0: Yeah, the first time I tasted it in the kitchen, I was going like, oh, this is going to be, you know, heavy, and it's going to be overwhelmingly chocolatey, and it was surprisingly light, actually. It's
4: really nice and light. We're using uh, 70% cocoa salads, bittersweet chocolate. You melt that with a little bit of butter, and our version has a bit of a more modern twist, so we're kind of drawing on the flavors of Turkish coffee, so we add a little bit of ground cardamom to this. And those kind of floral notes really balance the bitterness of the chocolate. And then we whisk together some sugar and egg yolks over a pot of water on the stovetop. And to that, we add half a cup of strong coffee. So coffee and chocolate are best friends already. But this version, we have even just a little more coffee flavor to it. Um, So again, kind of drying off those really kind of more modern flavors of Turkish coffee.
0: Mm -hmm. So this has to sit overnight to set up or just a couple hours? Can you make it on the same day?
4: You can make it on the same day. It has to sit for six hours. But what's really great about this is that typically you would use egg whites to lighten a chocolate mousse. But instead, we're using whipped cream. So we whip the cream and fold that into that base mixture of eggs and chocolate. And what that does is it's significantly more stable. So it can sit for up to three days. So you can make this three days ahead, bring it out to the table, dust it with some cocoa powder, some chocolate shavings on top, slice it for your company, and you look like this superhero who made this really fancy French dessert, but the truth is, it was super easy to put together.
0: Yeah, my household, the next day I'd go looking for it and it would be gone. <laughs> and, and no, no one will admit they got up at two in the morning to, <laughs> to finish it off. Uh, Lynn, thank you. An upgrade to chocolate mousse, dark chocolate terrine with coffee and cardamom. Not hard to make. Make it ahead, and it's super light and delicious. Thank you.
4: You're welcome. You can get the recipe for dark chocolate tureen with coffee and cardamom at MilkStreetRadio.com.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. After the break, Dan Pashman and I strategize – On the very best way to eat wings. That's coming right up. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal, and industrial to Scandi and Boho designs. Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick the delivery time and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com/slash milkstreet and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com/slash milkstreet for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one baker story sponsored by Las Vegas.
8: My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple and it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California, and what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang but also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see.
0: That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com/culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com/culinary.
4: Want to find the perfect Father's Day card? Dad deserves better than a drugstore card. This year, surprise him with a special personalized card from Moonpig. You can add your favorite photos and a heartfelt message. Plus, no more worrying about stamps or going to the post office, because we'll mail it for you the same day. Every dad deserves a Moonpig card. Get
1: your first card free with code podcast at moonpig.com.
11: Moonpig.com
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Cheryl Day and I will be answering a few more of your baking questions.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chelsea Brunsky from Hamilton, Ohio. Hi,
11: Chelsea. How can we help you today? My dad's favorite cake for his birthday is jello cake. And my aunt used to make it for him but since ha- has stopped doing that and so i just took it upon myself to you know give him something that he really enjoys but i've tried several times and i just cannot get the gelatin to stay suspended in the cake it usually just winds up pulling at the bottom of the cake and just fluidifying into a giant sheet oh i've tried it with water holes i've tried it with just a few holes, and it all just ends up, you can barely see anything in the column, and it just all pulls to the bottom, I have no clue what I'm doing.
3: Wow. So, we call them poke cakes in the Mm -hmm. South, and what I do is I just take the back of a wooden spoon, and Mm -hmm. I poke holes with that. What do you use?
11: I've used forks. I've used the back of a spoon. I've
3: used sugar bob. (laughs) (laughs) I've used all kinds of different things. And you're making a cake from scratch or a box cake? I'm using a box cake. That's what my aunt used to use. She just used like regular gelatin or regular box cake and that's what she used to use. Usually box cakes kinda get that extra, you know, domey top. It kinda does, but I try to slowly
11: pour it over it so at least it seeks into the bottom half.
3: Well, I don't know if this would make a difference, but my cakes, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm making them from scratch or like I said, a box cake usually has that dome top, but maybe mm-hmm. if you tried making it at least level, yeah. that would help. So when you're okay. pouring it in and mm-hmm. I have never seen it go all the way to the bottom though, it should be in all of the spheres. I wonder if your jello is too runny when you're pouring it in, maybe you need to let it set up a little bit.
0: I have a question. You said that the gelatin ends up at the bottom in a layer? Yeah. yeah. It sounds to me like it's running off around the sides of the cake down to the bottom.
11: Uh, it'll go through the entire
3: cake on the bottom.
0: Well, then it sounds to me like it's too hot or the gelatin needs to be cooler. And you're not cooler. poking
3: the holes all the way down to the bottom, right? I tried both, all the way and then halfway. Yeah, I wouldn't do all the way down.
0: I think the gelatin needs to be it cooler. It needs to cool down Pretty a cooler. little bit. Yeah, I mean, you okay.
3: know, it's going to take a while for it to set up. So you just want it where it's still pourable, though, but not too thin. I mean, even if you could spread it on the top mm-hmm. where it'll kind of go down, because that's what I do with my poke pudding cakes. I just kind of, you know, glop it and pour it. But I think a little bit thicker is what I would say. A thicker. And then okay. not poke it all the way mm-hmm. to the bottom. Yeah, I would try that. Do you have any other ideas, Chris?
0: Well, the only thing to do is to make your own jello. I mean, take fruit juice and gelatin and make your yeah. own. It would actually add a lot of interest to the dessert. Anyway.
3: And then you could make whatever flavor. You can yeah, make whatever know, flavor gave you want. I an
11: idea of all kinds of different flavors now. Oh, you, you've got me in trouble now.
3: <laughs> there you go. All right. That was the goal. <laughs> Okay, well, great. Thank you guys for your suggestions. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks yeah, for calling. No problem.
0: Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Cheryl and I are here to save you from baking disasters. Give us a call anytime, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or just email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
3: Hi, this is Beth from Wadsworth, Ohio. Hi, Beth. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you guys? Great. Thanks for calling.
0: How can we help you?
3: I have two very different cookie
11: recipes. One calls for oleo, butter, flour, egg yolks, sour cream, and yeast. And the other one calls for brown and white sugar, shortening, sour milk, soda, and flour. Hmm. Even though they're both very different, They both say that I should
3: refrigerate the dough overnight. And I was wondering, does the dough really need to be refrigerated overnight? Yes.
0: The one with yeast, uh, yeah, it's a cold ferment, which means it'll slowly do its magic in the fridge. And that Ah. will also develop some flavor and you'll get the right texture. The other one is just baking soda. You could go ahead, but if you chill the dough, obviously it's easier to work with. If you chill the dough overnight it'll probably end up being chewier and it'll concentrate flavors because it dehydrates a bit but it's easier to work with is the easy answer and the yeast one probably needs to do that just to develop the yeast over time cheryl
3: well so yeah the answer is yes i guess and no (laughs) for the second one you don't have to but i do restos and i'll tell you why i've gotten into long conversations with other baker friends one of my friends has a bakery Nicole Rucker in Los Angeles all she makes is cookies and pies or mostly that and we've had long conversation about what that resting period does with the dough Mm -hmm. and basically you're allowing the gluten to relax and the flavors to marry even in a cookie something as simple as a cookie believe it or not the flour is going to be fully hydrated And it's going to change the texture, and you'll get this deep golden brown color that you just won't get if you bake it the same day. Because everything Mm -hmm. is just, it's what we call an aged cookie dough, has more complex flavor from resting it overnight. That's good to know. Thanks, you guys. You're so welcome. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Yep, love the show. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, let's hear from our friend, Dan Pashman.
6: Dan, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. I'm getting psyched up for the Super Bowl. Are you psyched? Um, no. I'll probably check in like just before halftime just
0: to see what's going on.
6: <laughs> no, no. If, if the Patriots are playing, I would definitely watch. Absolutely. All right. Well, look. I think it's a great day. It's a fun day to gather together. Even if you don't like football, the commercials are fun. And yeah. the food is good, okay? Yeah. Let me tell you something, Chris. Do you know? Uh, go ahead and guess. How many wings do you think Americans oh, will consume on Super Bowl Sunday?
0: Uh, 42 million.
6: Not even close.
0: More? Really?
6: Yes. How many? 1.6 billion. No! Yes. Really? 1.6 billion wings. But I don't think most of those wings will be eaten correctly. Oh, no. Here we go. First of all, people need to understand that wings are a sort of distant cousin in the fried chicken family. I agree. And that means that when it comes out of the fryer, it's crispy. And when you cover it in sauce, and then let the wings sit. You are destroying that crisp, which to me is a cardinal culinary sin to destroy crisp. I totally agree with you. I mean, the the skin gets soft. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it does. So I recommend getting your wings with the sauces on the side, and I'll give you another reason why I think it's preferable. Not just, as we discussed, it preserves the crisp to the last second, but also it's hard when you're ordering for people coming over to watch the game and it's like do i get three dozen hot and two dozen mild or three dozen mild and two dozen hot how many teriyaki how many barbecue and once the sauce is on them they're done wait can i ask you a question yeah
0: if you go and order them and say look could you put the sauce on the side
6: are people gonna look at you funny you may get some funny looks yes but you know that has never stopped me chris good point (laughs) <laughs> excellent point yeah look if you're going to make your own wings and you're going to toss them in a pan and serve them immediately right then i'm okay with saucing but i don't think it's a great way to enjoy a super bowl party can i just ask a question so most people for
0: the super bowl have bet some money they're actually interested in the outcome of the game are you focused right. on on the wing issue here or, or do you get over that
6: it depends a little bit on who's playing. I'm, I'm a New York Giants fan, so if the Giants were playing, I wouldn't be thinking at all about the food. Good. But I will say that I I don't eat wings that often. And so when I eat them, I want them to be very delicious. One more question for you, Chris. Yeah. When you make wings or order wings, there's two options. There's the little mini drumsticks. Then there's the piece that's called the flat. That's the one with the two parallel bones inside. Which do you prefer? Drumstick. Why? Because the, the, the problem
0: with, with the two bones is the meat in between the bones. I mean, you have to kind of like stick your tongue through it or something. It's kind of hard to get that out sometimes. I mean, they,
6: they have good meat on them, though. But uh, Chris, we were so close to getting through this segment. Oh, and Lord. Ending in full agreement. What a shame. Because, you, you, because it, it's meatier, right? Is that why you like it? The flat has a higher meat-to-bone right. ratio and a higher fat-to-meat ratio, which means not only is there more meat, but it's more tender meat. The key is to go to the top of the flat where the two bones meet, dig your thumb in between, and pull the skinny bone out. Oh. And then you have one bone that is effectively like a mini rib. It's one bone with all mm. of the most tender, most juicy meat around it. It's, it is a little bit more work, but I think well worth it.
0: Dan Pashman, I think you finally changed my life. Wow. Did we end this segment in total agreement, Chris? No, I you I, I, over? I, I, I'm just expressing gratitude for the fact oh. that my culinary world has now been turned upside down. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Dan Pashman on um, the Super Bowl and uh, Super Wings. Thank you. Enjoy your wings, Chris. That was Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sparkful Podcast and also inventor of the pasta shape, Cascatelli. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get every recipe, access to all live stream cooking classes and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store and more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening.
9: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp, Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.